1: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Western monarch butterflies all but disappeared from coastal California last fall, but there are now promising signs of an uptick in numbers. The Pacific Grove Monarch Sanctuary, which didn't see a single monarch last winter, recently counted over 13,000 butterflies. As citizen scientists begin this year's Thanksgiving monarch butterfly count, we want to talk with some experts about why we're seeing this mostly unexpected rebound in monarch butterflies and what it might mean for their future. Joining us are Emma Pelton, a conservation biologist and Western monarch lead at the Xerxes Society for Invertebrate Conservation. Welcome, Emma.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: And we also have David James, an entomologist at Washington State University, who recently completed some research on these butterflies. Welcome, David. Thank you. Um, David, let's start with you. Uh, just kind of lay out the, the big picture here. What's been happening with Western monarch butterflies?
3: Well, as we probably all know, that there's been a very great decline in numbers um, over a number of years, but particularly over the last couple of years. Uh, and we count monarchs uh, at their overwintering sites in the winter um, on the California coast. So we've had this very big decline. Um, and then this year, the numbers have Have gone back up again um, which has surprised a lot of people Um, and it's a very promising sign it doesn't mean to say the whole thing has been turned around and monarchs are going to become very common again but it is a hopeful sign Um, and also we've had the occurrence of winter breeding in the bay area for the first time in significant numbers uh, just last winter and and possibly this winter as well.
1: Mm -hmm. David can you tell us specifically how you do this kind of butterfly count like in your work how did this actually how did you actually go like okay this is how many butterflies we're seeing did you tag butterflies just tell us more about sort of like the method section of your of your research
3: well the count has been done for for more than 20 years 25 years now and it's all due to um, the efforts of citizen scientists people that are interested in monarch butterflies Um, go to the overwintering sites which we know they're they're the same sites every year along the California coast from San Diego to north of San Francisco and every year around Thanksgiving um, a lot of these uh, citizen scientists do the counts and so that's why we had this very excellent data set on numbers um, over the years um, because the butterflies conveniently roost in the same trees and the same (laughs) sites and we can count them.
1: Yeah, we talked with uh, a scientist a few months ago who'd been doing these counts for 50 years. Uh, We would love to hear from you. Are you a citizen scientist who's been involved in one of these monarch butterfly counts? We'd love to hear from you. Uh, For the rest of the general population, what are your questions about how monarch butterflies are faring? And maybe more importantly, have you noticed changes? In your local monarch population, you can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED uh, Forum. Emma Pelton, conservation biologist. What do we think had been driving down the monarch counts? Is it climate change? Is it changes in habitat? Is it sort of like most ecological things, all of the above?
2: Yeah, I think that this is one of those areas where we can we cannot point to one thing and say this is the silver bullet reason. And like you said, this is true of so many wildlife species that we're seeing decline as we have this. We face this biodiversity crisis, not just in insects, but across a lot of our, our groups of animals, like birds and, and mammals. And so when we're thinking about what are the factors, there are the things that we suspect are the most important, and then there are probably smaller factors. And so some research has really looked at this. And um, the big factors continue to be habitat loss, which is both the breeding habitat loss, the loss of native milkweeds, nectar plants across our landscapes, and then also the overwintering loss. So the forested groves that these butterflies rely on as our community scientists are out right now, as David mentioned, doing those Thanksgiving counts. Um, Those are really the two pieces that we think are very important. And then there's this overlay of pesticide use, both in our urban areas and how we garden and how we manage landscapes and in our agricultural areas and how we grow food in this country. So those pieces have really been shown both in monarchs and in many other insects and butterflies in California and elsewhere to be the big drivers. And then we think climate change is making things worse. And it's probably adding kind of a... um, you know, more of an uphill battle as we try to work on these these habitat issues. So I think the important point is to make sure people know that they can make a difference by creating habitat and lowering their reliance on pesticides. And it's not all lost because we're facing a changing climate.
1: Um, you know, Emma, one fact you didn't mention was uh, the kind of parasites that, at least from my understanding, have been um, affecting monarch populations. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, there's um, a protozoan parasite um, that's known, the short, short name for it is OE, and it's spread really easily among butterflies when they land on a milkweed plant, it's on their bellies and they can transfer it. So I think everyone's a little more aware of a disease transfer now yeah,
1: that we're- right, yeah. they're going through their it. own COVID. Right.
2: <laughs> so this is more of a contact, um, less of a respiratory issue. Mm. And um, these, these OE parasites can, can get to really high levels. And if they're at really high levels, um, they can be debilitating. It can kill a monarch. It can lead, cause it to have a shorter life. It can't migrate as well. It doesn't have as many um, offspring. And so it can be really problematic. And it's part of why we're really concerned about some of this winter breeding in the East Bay. And then really, we've seen it for a long time in Florida, parts of the Gulf Coast, Southern California, where some of these OE rates can be really high. And we're worried that that could have a long-term negative impact on monarch
1: populations. We're talking about a promising start to the Thanksgiving count of Western monarch butterflies with Emma Pelton, conservation biologist and Western monarch lead at the Xerxes Society for Invertebrate Conservation, and David James, an entomologist at Washington State University. And we want to know, hear from you, have you noticed changes in your local monarch population? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook We're at KQD Forum. Stay tuned for more on Monarchs and Milkweed after the break.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
1: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about some surprisingly good numbers uh, in the latest counts of Western monarch butterflies with David James, an entomologist at Washington State University, and Emma Pelton, a conservation biologist and Western monarch lead the Xerxes Society for Invertebrate Conservation. David James, I wanted to ask you about this, this question of these kind of stable, sedentary populations versus the migratory populations. I mean, one of the things I think captures people's imaginations about monarchs is they have these multi-generational migratory paths, you know, and they're these tiny creatures that cross continents. But what we're talking about here, or at least what you, uh, one of the things that you've been studying, are these populations that are just kind of hanging around Google's campus, right?
3: Yeah, sure. They've um, they've adapted to the warmer climate, I believe. I mean, Emma mentioned climate change, and there's no doubt that the climate, particularly in California, has warmed. And so, last winter, um, actually the fall of 2020, you you in California, and particularly San Francisco Bay Area, had an extremely warm time of it. I mean, you had many fires in California, mm-hmm. and the temperatures were way above normal in September and October. And this is the time that the migrants, that uh, are uh, sorry, the monarchs are migrating in from Pacific Northwest and elsewhere, heading towards the coast. And I believe that, you know, because of the very warm conditions, um, some of them got derailed, so to speak, and uh, and decided to set up breeding populations within um, the Bay Area. So it was, I think, a consequence of, of climate change or the warming climate this year of course it's been much more normal the temperatures that you've had down there so i believe you know the the butterflies have responded to that and and are now on the coast in their traditional overwintering sites yeah you know listener
1: robin writes can you ask david more about the winter breeding of monarchs in the bay area where is this a good thing and i think one of the one of the questions that kind of emma hinted at earlier is the presence of this parasite um, it seemed like in, in, in your initial survey, there was actually a substantial amount of this parasite present in the uh, monarchs that you found.
3: Yes. Um, well, we, we think the, the breeding population occurs um, throughout the Bay Area or it did last year. It wasn't just confined to the South Bay. Um, and yes, we did see large numbers of the OE parasite amongst the population we we were looking at. So that that is a concern. Um, and as Emma mentioned, you know, there, there's a lot of research being done on the impact of, of this pathogen um, that's quite worrying. But most of the research has been on been done on the Eastern US population. And unfortunately, we know very little about the Western population in terms of OE uh, and a lot of other factors too. So so you know it's something we need to be aware of, um, but we need more research on it, to be honest. Yeah. Emma Pelton, I guess the question is, you
1: have these huge, what I like to think of as herds of monarchs, (laughs) um, and you have some of these, uh, what seem to be more sedentary populations, at least over one winter. Do you think that... This, these populations will become distinct? Will they? Will the ones who've been staying around the Bay Area, will they decide to migrate at a certain point? What do we know about those kinds of triggers and the relationship between sedentary monarch populations and migratory ones?
2: I think the, the biggest thing to me is the mystery of it. And, and I say that not because it means we don't know anything, but I think there's a lot we're trying to figure out. As David said, there has not been as much research on Western monarchs. But as a whole, North American monarchs are incredibly well-studied butterflies. And so I'd like to put that plug in that there are so many other butterflies we're not always talking about and paying attention to. And those are really um, important. And so I think that the the big thing with thinking about what we know about resident monarchs and migratory monarchs is that there is probably some interchange. We know they're in the same areas, You know, monarchs that are in the East Bay on um, milkweed right now, probably non-native milkweed, those those same monarchs might be interacting with any monarchs that may get through the winter and um, are gonna migrate back into the Central Coast foothills and, and into the Central Valley in the spring. And so there is some interaction and that's where we're worried about things like OE spread and disease spread, but whether or not they're the same butterflies and one of them decided to do this and one decided to do that, that's something that we're still learning a lot about and community scientists and reports last year um, you know, to to David, to Xerxes through our Western Monarch Milkweed Mapper Community Science Project. We're getting people to report this. And it's so cool. I love that I work on an animal that everybody can contribute to the knowledge gaining of. And there are two really cool studies that I'm aware of right now that are kind of getting underway. One is funded by Google for researchers um, Elizabeth Crone and Cheryl Schultz, and they're gonna be doing kind of an in-depth look at this phenomenon in the East Bay starting in January. And then there's a genomic study by Chris Funk at uh, Colorado State University, and that's funded by the Fish and Wildlife Service and others. And he's looking at um, salvaging dead monarchs to understand what the genetic differences or similarities are between these resident monarchs and the migratory monarchs. So I think we're gonna learn a lot more pretty soon, but we don't quite have all the answers.
1: Let's bring in Jaime from Vallejo. Welcome to the show. Thank you for uh, taking my call.
4: I'm actually going to, uh, on the same lines that, you know, I'm I'm an evolutionary biologist. And and to me, um, I just wanted to figure out a little bit about the genetics, about these two morphs. I mean, at least the ones that migrate and the resident ones. And the thing that I know is that these are not the same populations that migrate all the way down to Mexico, correct? I mean, all these beautiful, you know, uh, forests, you know, crowded with with these uh, butterflies. My question was: um, How much do we know about these overlap between these two morphs? And do you think there's any hybridization that might be happening between these two different forms? And we know that it's sometimes in birds, hybrids, um, particularly species that migrate, they they get the wrong information and they can be migrating in different places that are not suitable for for these populations. So, what were your thoughts about that? And and I. Thank you for mentioning the genomic work by Chris Funk, um, and, and we're looking forward to hear more about the genomic that come out from this, this work.
1: Thank Man, you. I did not know that birds could get the wrong migratory information. Uh, let's, uh, Emma, let's start with you, and David, maybe uh, take a crack at that one, too, if you have something to add at the end.
2: Great. Yeah, these are some big, interesting questions that um, I I don't know that I have a great soundbite, but I do think one piece of this puzzle, um, so far the genetic work that's been published has shown that eastern and western monarchs, um, eastern monarchs are born east of the Rocky Mountains, and even into southern Ontario, and they migrate to central Mexico near Michoacan, outside of Mexico City, and then really high elevation forests, really different than coastal California, And then Western monarchs are born west of the Rocky Mountains um, in good years in the past, even in the Southern BC, and then they migrate down to that Pacific coast from Mendocino into even Baja. And so we see that those butterflies genetically have looked the same based on the current um, studies that are out there, but these are really different migrations. These are really different landscapes. And so there's definitely an active area of research to try and understand how these populations might be different and if there's some phenotypic plasticity to throw out a, some fancy science words for you all this morning. <laughs> and um, and I think I mean, i is an example, evolutionary
1: biologist. Yeah, you
2: can it. handle this. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think the bird thing is a, is a great example. We know that migratory birds, there are often parts of those those populations that do something different and don't migrate or stick around. And that's, that's normal with migrating animals that some portion of them try different strategies. And sometimes those strategies are good. And some years they might be good and other years they might not be good and they may spread disease or they may have kind of long-term detrimental effects in it. And it just kind of depends on the context.
3: Yeah. David, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, so I I think, you know, Emma's correct. Uh, The population really over the whole US is the same population. And there is some evidence that that, um, uh, the butterflies in Mexico, uh, when they leave in the spring, some of that population actually trickles onto the west side of the continent. So we actually get some of the eastern population uh, coming into the west uh, in the spring, into Arizona. Uh, and we we see this most years. Uh, do, it, do we know yeah.
1: that via tagging or just sort of like where they well. are?
3: I was just going to say, it's, it's more um, circumstantial evidence um, finding monarchs that are looking very beat up early in the season in Arizona and, and, and theorizing that they've, they've come a long way and probably come from Mexico. We unfortunately don't have any tagging data to confirm that, but it certainly looks like um, that is happening. And it would help explain why, as Emma said, the, the populations throughout the country are the same genetically. Um, but the, the, also the important thing is about confusion about migration is that the butterflies respond to the environment. Um, you know, it's decline in day length that causes them to migrate, and and so it doesn't matter where they are; they're still going to respond to the same environmental cues, uh, and the landscape is going to affect their migration too. Um, so, so the butterflies respond to the environment and so really they shouldn't get confused (laughs) but you know we're we're talking we're speculating right here there's so much more research it's got to be done
1: i mean thank you so much for that call i want to uh add in alicia or alicia from oakland welcome to the show
0: hey hi
4: um my name is alicia and i grew up in pacific grove in the 70s and 80s and at that time the monarch butterflies were every place they absolutely would Drip off the trees in the in the sanctuary, and um, it's really heart wrenching to have witnessed their decline um, and to have them, you know, not not show up. Um, and so I'm really excited to hear that there is indeed a resurgence um, that's happening now. That it makes me very happy to hear.
1: <laughs> Thank you for that call, Alicia a- Emma Pelton, I think. You probably want to say something about the scale of that resurgence relative to the scale of the, the millions that were there during the time uh, when Alicia was in Pacific Grove.
2: Yeah, thanks for that. I think that this is where I have to to caution our, our optimism. I think it's totally reason to celebrate. We have better numbers this year. I'm celebrating. I know many people are celebrating. But it's that that issue of shifting baselines where even four years ago, we were seeing more monarchs. So this has really been uh, a lesson the last few years as we've seen the population dwindle. As David kind of said at the beginning, we used to have over a million butterflies in the 1980s. That's when we have kind of the, the early estimates. So we know there were, you know, one, five, 10 million butterflies. It depended on the year, probably before the 80s, into the 80s. The 90s, things kind of went crazy and the population started to crash. And that's similar to a lot of butterflies. And there's work out of Matt Forrester's lab and Art Shapiro's labs that have kind of pointed to a change in our pesticide use as maybe being part of that Mm. that seismic shift. And then we really got into a new normal of hundreds of thousands of monarchs through the 2000s and 2010s. And that became kind of our baseline. People still thought it was a lot of butterflies, but it was actually a lot less than even a few decades before. And then the bottom really fell out in 2018, where we dropped below 30,000 monarchs. And then last year, below 2,000 monarchs. So we all seem like really it might be nervous. all
1: over, right? Because yeah. you, need, you need a certain size of population to sort of maintain a healthy population.
2: Totally. And, and we don't know what that, that line is. It's been hypothesized that 30,000 is that line, but but that's a guess. That's researchers giving their best guess. We haven't seen populations that are this migratory and have been that big drop so quickly and, and so, um, so severely. And so we we're all wondering what was going to happen this year. Are there going to be 200 butterflies or are there going to be 20,000 or are there going to be 200,000? And I think the good news is we're going to be well over 50,000. And, uh, you know, we're all kind of hoping that it'll be It'll be much closer to what it was four years ago, but it's still not that that hundreds of thousands or millions that we had.
1: Yeah. You know, Yurik writes, uh, a citizen scientist, uh, I started participating in the counts back in 2019 and did not see hardly any. But now this year, I have seen at least four monarchs on three separate occasions in the East Bay, and I'm very hopeful after last year's frighteningly low numbers. I've heard that they're even being spotted in Half Moon Bay again. And Robin tweets, Uh, Emma mentioned a study in the East Bay starting in January. Is there a way to get involved in that? I see monarchs in my garden every day. Emma?
2: Um, I can't speak for the researchers. I think that there may be a community science component. And if there is, probably the way to best contribute is to report what you see to the Western Monarch Milkweed Mapper project. We're in iNaturalist, so you can report when you see a monarch or milkweed. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay, so there. And and can you just give us the name of those researchers one more time for people who...
2: Sure, it's Elizabeth Crown, she's a professor at Tufts and then Cheryl Schultz who's a professor at Washington State University. Great.
1: Um Eric tweets, we talk a lot about monarchs, but are they better indicators of all butterfly populations or are they just the prettiest ones we give them more attention and people know them by look. David James, what do you think? Is it, are, are monarchs kind of an indicator species or merely
3: sort of an aesthetic species? They are certainly an indicator species um, and it's just fortunate that people love monarchs and they're very attractive. so, so that you know makes them a flagship species and, and they are truly a flagship species for the pollinator decline generally, not not just butterflies. So, so yeah, they're extremely important in that role. Yeah you know and this is sort of the eternal question um,
1: of monarch uh, <laughs> support, which is we have a couple milkweed questions. I have three new milkweed plants in my garden. Are these microhabitats helpful? Should, can I add the caterpillars on them to the count? And another listener tweets, I work at a local nursery selling plants butterflies love. There are so many in the nursery lately, caterpillars and chrysalis. But everyone wants to keep buying the milkweed to keep them all year. Y'all need to let it go dormant naturally. Um, M. Pelton, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I think this is an area that, um, kind of alluding to David's research, that, You know, what's really an active area of of question, how much are these winter breeding monarchs contributing to the population as a whole, or are they hurting the population? And maybe they're doing both. I think that that's on the table, that there could be short-term gains where there are more butterflies, but they're more diseased and they're maybe not very good migrators. So in the long-term, they could be problematic. So at the Xerces Society, we recommend people plant native milkweeds. We don't have this problem. Um, Native milkweeds will naturally go dormant most years. And then if you have tropical milkweed we'd recommend cutting it back in october and november to break that disease cycle um encourage those monarchs to to migrate and then let it grow back so january and february you know that that plant is there so when those monarchs need somewhere to lay their eggs it's available
3: david james do you have a different uh sense of this no not really i mean the native plants are are the best um but you know the tropical milkweed is is playing a function and a role in keeping, you know, as Anna said, at least a short-term um, survival benefit for monarch populations in the Bay Area. Again, we just know so little about what is actually happening, so we don't really want to do anything drastic um, to, dis- to to disturb the success they apparently had last year. I mean, my studies showed that the winter breeding population was very successful last year. They they were able to survive the Bay Area winter. There was plenty of nectar for them, plenty of milkweed for them, and so. Clearly, um, on some level, the the plants were playing um, a good role for the butterfly in their ecology. But in the future, who knows? We we need more research. I keep saying it. (laughs) We've been talking about a promising start to the Thanksgiving count
1: of Western monarch butterflies with David James, an entomologist at Washington State University, and Emma Pelton, a conservation biologist and Western monarch lead at the Xerxes Society for Invertebrate Conservation. Thanks so much to you both.
2: Thank you. Thank
1: you. Forum is produced by Tina Larberg, Susan Britton, Ariana Prale, Blanca Torres, and Grace Wan. Judy Campbell is lead producer for the 9 o'clock hour. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, Brendan Willard, and Chris Hoff. Our interns are Kimia Akbari and Jennifer Ng. Our executive editor is Ethan Toven Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. Wanted to give you... One last note that Trans Awareness Week is this week. Earlier, we talked with two folks from the Transgender District, and this weekend is the Trans Day of Remembrance. You can look it up and head out to that vigil. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This has been a great hour. Thanks so much. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim.